Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Coloradans participating in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, saw an increase in their benefits this month. On today's show, we'll examine the impacts of this recent investment. Plus, with Election Day around the bend, we'll explore the ins and outs of Proposition 120, a proposed cut to property tax rates. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Some of the winter weather that will impact Colorado's mountains in the coming days is the remnants of this weekend's major storm system that hit parts of California. Drenching rain caused flooding across the San Francisco Bay Area, and mudslides were reported within the massive Dixie Fire burn scar. The Weather Service said Sunday was San Francisco's fourth wettest day, dating back to the gold rush years of the 1800s. But all that moisture is not enough to end the drought plaguing the western U.S. And after another long, dry summer, many are hoping for a wetter winter. With reservoirs in the region at record low levels, a lot is riding on what the next few months will bring. But as KUNC's Alex Hager reports, even a snowy winter won't be enough to turn things around. If you've been coming to the same place for a long time, it's easy to notice when things change. On this ranch near Steamboat Springs, Colorado, the telltale signs of drought are everywhere, like in this dusty creek bed. Typically, you'd see at least a little water in this throughout the summer. And as I said, it's, it's just been dry all summer long. Todd Hagenboo's family has been ranching this land for 75 years. And this creek, it feeds into the larger Yampa River. It's quite a shocker because, you know, I'm in my mid-40s and I remember coming up here as a little kid and moving some rocks around, playing in the water. My kids uh, this year did not get that opportunity and, and that's kind of a sad state of affairs. And on a working ranch, it's more than just sad. It cuts into the bottom line. Ranchers in the headwaters of the Yampa can't grow and make enough hay and need to buy tons of it to make it through the winter. But as we ride across his property, Hagen Boo says that's usually not the end of the world. We can get a couple good years, you know, with some of the bad years. You can overcome some of that, but we're due for a good year. Which begs the question, will there be enough snow this winter to help erase some of the drought impacting the Yampa and the Colorado River Basin? In short, probably not. You never know exactly what you're going to get with the La Nina. It's certainly not a perfect relationship. That's Becky Bollinger. She's the Colorado Assistant State Climatologist. And La Nina is when a surge of cold water in the Pacific Ocean changes weather patterns over the western U.S. In general, it leans towards the northern mountains would be more likely to have a, a better winter season. And the southern mountains, the San Juan Mountains, the Sangro de Cristos would, might not be able to get as much. And while she describes the La Nina weather pattern as a bit of a crapshoot, right now it's leaning towards most of Colorado being warmer and drier than the historical average. While we do depend on the monsoon season, especially to help uh, fill up those soils before we enter the cold season, 
um, we, we really need that snowpack to, to kind of really dig out the way that Arizona did with their monsoon. She's alluding to this year's historically wet summer in Arizona. It's another important part of the Colorado River conversation since the state has millions of people using its water. And when I spoke with Arizona state climatologist Erin Ann Saffel, that wet summer was still in full force. A cell just opened up over my house. It's raining cats and dogs out there, and I'm wanting to go look outside the window. (laughs) But La Nina conditions mean storms like these are not likely to last. And even a great rainy winter in the desert wouldn't turn things around that much. Arizona has been in these drought conditions since the mid-90s. And to fully come out of those drought conditions, we would need to have a few seasons of above average precipitation. And wet seasons in Arizona are literally a drop in the bucket. The majority of water in the Colorado River, the water that feeds farms and taps all the way down to Mexico, it starts as rain and snow high in the mountains of Wyoming and Colorado. And in the long term, Becky Bollinger says climate change will bring shorter winters, warmer temperatures, and drier soil. We know that we are going to have an increasing frequency of droughts And we have seen that in these past 20 years. And that is something that's going to continue. And back in Steamboat Springs, that dry creek bed on Todd Hagenboo's property will not be the last one to lose its water. He sees it as a sign of things to come in other parts of the West. Where this would normally be contributing just a little bit, which contributes to the river, which contributes then to the Colorado River and to the overall basin. It's just another signal that things are dry and we shouldn't expect as much water in the river when places like this have dried up. Turning things around in the Colorado River Basin and bringing more water to the people who depend on it, that's going to take years of above average rain and snow where it matters most. Alex Hager, KUNC. Day is a week from tomorrow, and time is running out for voters to mail back their ballots to have them arrive in time. After today, residents should return their ballots to a drop box or voting center to ensure they get counted on November 2nd. In addition to a slew of various local measures, Colorado voters face three statewide ballot questions this year. This week, we'll take an in depth look at all three, starting with Proposition 120. With home value skyrocketing, Colorado voters have a chance to significantly lower their property tax bills this November. But 120 is more complex than it seems. KUNC's Scott Franz has more on how it's pitting conservatives, educators, and state lawmakers against one another in a high-stakes battle that could stretch on even after Election Day. Financial analyst Chris Brown says it would take more than a single beer to explain all the nuances of Proposition 120 to the average voter. It's touted as a permanent 9% property tax cut for business and homeowners. But it really might be the case that what voters see on their ballot and what they vote on is not the final outcome in terms of the impact to their tax bill. Brown is a researcher at the nonpartisan Common Sense Institute based in Greenwood Village. The state legislature this year passed Senate Bill 293, which 
intentionally changed and altered some of the property tax classifications. This resulted in a lowering of property taxes by about $200 million for the next fiscal year. But knowing that this measure was in the works, the bill also had a side effect, limiting who could actually get a tax break if Proposition 120 passed. This appears to be a poison pill against the proposition. Republicans, including Senator Ray Scott of Grand Junction, were concerned lawmakers were trying to water down a tax cut being pursued by voters. If taxpayers, single-family homeowners in particular, approve it, only multifamily property owners get a 9% break. But Senator Chris Hansen, a Denver Democrat, defended the legislation, saying single-family homeowners should be treated differently because governments tend to spend more money providing services to them, from trash collection to firefighters. And some studies have shown that as much as a 50% reduction in capital investment and a 15% reduction in service costs for high-density developments. In other words, letting single-family homeowners get another tax break would result in a much bigger hit to the state's checkbook. Again, layers of complexity here. Which brings us back to today. Chris Brown says the battle over Proposition 120 may not end on Election Day. If voters approve this, the, the final impact will be determined in courts and this is already on the mind of conservative activist Michael Fields. As the author of Proposition 120, he says he would probably be the one suing the legislature if it passes. This is money that is not in people's pockets then. They're spending on taxes. You know, what other things do they struggle with when, when government you know, has bounced back quicker than anybody expected? Fields says property values have gone up rapidly during the pandemic adding that lawmakers did not go far enough with their tax cuts. But others are involved, including local governments, fire departments, and school boards, all stand to lose hundreds of millions of dollars if voters agree to the ballot question. Studies suggest it would hurt the most in resort counties like Pitkin and Eagle. It just exacerbates the inequities that exist within our communities. That's Amy baca Olert. She leads the Colorado Education Association, the state's largest teachers union. Those communities that have been able to go to their voters and to ask for voters to, um, you know, raise their taxes to support their local school districts. And even when that happens in some communities, because they have a lower property tax base, it's not the same as that happening in, you know, say maybe the neighboring community. But many are struggling because of the pandemic, and supporters like Fields say they need relief now. I think about people on fixed incomes, seniors, people that are living paycheck to paycheck, you know, a big increase in property taxes can have a big impact in them keeping their houses over the long term. Certainly, we have all struggled, especially recently through COVID. But Olert hopes voters will also think about the ripple effects. I would hope that people would take the time, um, I guess, as any good educator would say, to do your homework, to really understand what are the unintended consequences of voting on something like this could have? If Proposition 120 is approved and courts do not overturn the law the legislature passed, Chris Brown says the immediate impact of 120 would shrink from $1 billion in cuts to about $150 million, and only commercial, multifamily, and lodging properties would get tax breaks. Regardless, Brown says school districts would be shielded somewhat by the billions in federal coronavirus relief money they've been getting. Now, it's not a perfect one-to-one -one 
match in terms of being able to use those COVID dollars in the same way. However, a lot of that money can be used to fill priorities and needs. Opponents of 120 counter that permanent tax cuts could reduce the state's ability to respond to wildfires that are larger because of ongoing drought. To cushion the blow, supporters included a provision letting the state keep up to $25 million annually that it otherwise could not spend because of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or Tabor Amendment. I'm Scott Franz in Denver. We'll take a look at the two other statewide questions on this year's ballot later this week. You can also find our reporting on this year's ballot questions at our website, KUNC.org. Coming up after the break, Coloradans participating in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, saw an increase in their benefits this month. We'll explore the timing of the increase and the impact of this investment in just a moment. listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. On October 1st, Coloradans participating in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, saw an increase in their monthly benefits of 21%. This will raise the average monthly per-person benefits from around $121 to $157 per month. In Colorado alone, SNAP serves more than 250,000 households and 499,000 individuals. According to Colorado SNAP manager Terry Chaston, the increase will help ensure low-income families have access to a healthy diet, which helps prevent disease, reduces health care costs, and supports children in the classroom. Here to talk more about the SNAP program benefit increase is Division Director for Food and Energy for the Colorado Department of Human Services, Carla Maracini. Carla, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. And we're also joined by social worker and SNAP program recipient and advocate Janelle Jenkins. Janelle, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Carla, let's start with you. Could you briefly describe the SNAP program? What is the mission and what kind of benefits can recipients receive? Sure. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or which is commonly known as SNAP, is a federally funded program that provides cash-like benefits as a monthly payment for eligible individuals and families who have lower incomes for the purchase of food, and it also increases access to healthy meal options. So the SNAP program is delivered on an electronic benefit transfer card or EBT card, and it can be used just like a debit card at authorized grocery stores and farmers markets for eligible food purchases. And the recent benefit increase was for non-pandemic benefits, uh, which makes me wonder what were the pandemic benefits how, and how did the pandemic impact the SNAP program? Great questions, Erin. So the Thrifty Food Plan is developed by the USDA, and it is the base for the national standard for a nutritious diet at a minimal cost. The Thrifty Food Plan informs how SNAP benefits are calculated on a regular basis. During the last 18 months or so, because of the pandemic, Colorado has also been participating in an option through the USDA in order to get additional SNAP benefits to uh, individuals and households who participate in the SNAP program. And so that has brought 
uh, households up to the maximum monthly benefit that they can receive for their household size during this time period. So the increase that we are seeing now as a result of this change in the Thrifty Food Plan is actually an increase on pre-pandemic levels. And so for some households, they may not have seen that immediate 21% increase because we're already, we were already participating at a higher level, but they will have seen some increase for sure starting at the beginning of this month in October. And Janelle, tell me a bit about your experience with the SNAP program. How did you hear about it? When did you first get involved? I've been involved for several years. Um, I have two children and I'm a single mother. And so I was introduced to it early on um, of my children's life to be able to supply, you know, food for them and have access for them. It's been a staple in our household and I've used it for many, many years. Has your experience given you and your family more options when it comes to to food choice? Definitely. My son is a vegetarian, and so his food is a lot more expensive. And so being able to afford the food that he chooses is great. And it really doesn't have any restrictions. And so things like almond milk, we don't have to stick to the common, you know, the common taste out there that we're able to eat what we feel is healthy. On October 1st, as you mentioned, SNAP households saw an increase in regular benefits. Uh, Carla, how much was this increase? What does it look like for a household? And why was this increase uh, put in place? So in 2018, the Farm Bill, which is actually where the SNAP uh, program is housed at a federal level, included um, the requirement that the USDA uh, by 2022 and then every five years after really take a look at the cost of the standard diet um, and look at, you know, market prices and, you know, truly what does a family need in order to supplement their monthly food budget. So this thrifty food plan uh, kind of revision, uh, it's a little bit historic because it is the first time that this has happened in 45 years. We have seen a cost of living increase every single year. This is the first time, however, uh, in that many years that we have seen this very large revision of the thrifty food plan. It, it really is uh, intended to make sure that, again, those pre-pandemic levels of calculations for SNAP benefits for households are increased. And what we're seeing um, is uh, an increase by about $36.24 per person per month. A family of four, for instance, who are receiving the maximum benefit, uh, they'll see $835 a month, which is up from $782 per month. And we, we know that this will help individuals and families continue to access healthy meal options and supplement their budget so that they can use their other income in other ways. And in reading about this, I, I understand the benefit increase was meant to reflect the modern American diet. According to the USDA, what does that diet look like and what should it look like? Sure. So uh, every few years, the USDA really does examine uh, food plans, and this was intended to look at creating what, what they call market baskets for various age groups and individuals and gender groups. And so each of these kind of market baskets is looking at various stages of development for children. If you are a, a pregnant woman, what your diet should look like. Ultimately, it breaks it down to pounds per week allotted for subgroups of 
grains and vegetables and fruits and milk products and meat and bean products and other foods. And really, I think that the great thing about this um, most recent revision is that it puts a lot more emphasis on things like dark green leafy vegetables and whole fruit and poultry and other things that uh, compromise a practical and cost-effective diet uh, for various stages in a person's life. We are speaking with the Division Director for Food and Energy for the Colorado Department of Human Services, Carla Maricini, and Janelle Jenkins, a social worker and SNAP program recipient and advocate. Janelle, why do you think the increase in SNAP benefits was so important? And do you have a sense of what outcomes we'll see from this investment? With the kids being home a lot more, they're now eating, you know, the complete three meals a day and having their snacks at home as well. Um, throughout the pandemic, or there's been times where I've had to keep them home for safety precautions. And so we need that food, that um, we need that extra food. Um, and it's keeping me from having to work extra hours um, that I'm able to continue my regular job and be at home to tend to my children as a mother and not have that, that stress. And the outcome, I think you'll see a lot more families thriving, a lot more families eating healthier. Um, I think the American diet is, you know, our basic fruits, vegetables from seed to stomach is what is trending right now. And as it should be, but to be able to afford fresh fruits and a salad is a lot more expensive than just buying like a cheeseburger or um, a sandwich, you know, and so being able to cook, I'm teaching my daughter how to cook. We spend a lot of family time. So it goes beyond just having food, but being able to um, build relationship and enjoy food together, it means a lot as well. Well, lastly, and I, I want to pose this to both of you. Um, I know there are misconceptions about SNAP, and I think it would be great to address some of those. So, um, Janelle, let me start with you. What would you like non-SNAP recipients to know about the SNAP program? Well, as mentioned before, you can use it at the farmer's market and it usually doubles your bucks. Um, there's a program out there that can double whatever you buy. And it's really convenient. You can use it at your, like from grocery stores to big box, like Sam's Club and Costco, um, down to your local grocery stores. Um, in all the years I've used it, I've never been denied any type of food um, or any brand. And I work a full-time job and a part-time job, and I'm still using food stamps. So that does speak to, um, you know, be people being able to survive. And so it's not people that, you know, are just trying to um, look for a handout, but it's helping me to build a better future for me and my children. And Carla, what about you? What should non-SNAP recipients know about the program? You know, something that I think is a, a great point about the SNAP program is it not only provides an opportunity for participants to be able to increase access to healthy foods, but it is an excellent economic stimulant. This program uh, provides an opportunity to for people to increase their purchasing power at their lo local grocery markets, um, which in turn is also something that supports our local economy and our local agriculture. So it has widespread impacts and it, it really is um, one of the best available programs. Um, and Janelle touched on this. One of the most common myths is 
I work and I have an income, so I won't be eligible. That is, in fact, not true. And many uh, households and families and individuals who work also qualify for SNAP. Uh, so it is worth the time to go on to the PEAK uh, platform or, or call the Hunger uh, Free Colorado Hunger Hotline and, and walk through that with an individual. The other very common myth is that if I participate in this program, I am taking away from somebody else. And that's not true. So this is, if you are income eligible for this program, you are able to receive a monthly benefit without it negatively impacting anyone else. And I can agree with that. I, I mean, I've had times, a few times where I've had to tell my son, slow down or, you know, save some for your sister. He's an athlete and 6'2 at 17. So telling him to slow down kind of hurt my heart. And so not having to, you know, ask him to not eat so much or question, is he really hungry? But just allowing him to have a, some, a nutritious meal in peace. Um, I don't want to be on it forever, but the need has been there. Um, but it has definitely helped me to put money in the bank to sustain to one day come off of the program. And so I appreciate how it's, it's held us thus far. That was social worker and SNAP program recipient and advocate Janelle Jenkins and division director for food and energy for the Colorado Department of Human Services, Carla Maricini. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you, Erin. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, students face many challenges during the pandemic, from canceled tests and graduations to difficulties with remote learning. Kids in a geometry class here, most of them failed geometry during the hybrid year and they desperately need help so that we are not finding that they are further and further and further behind. Tomorrow, we hear about a ballot measure that would help fund educational programs by raising taxes on retail marijuana. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.